welcome back to Betting Around Podcast. Uh, this is Lauren standing in for Jane this week. Uh, Jane uh, is simply too overcome with ecstasy from Byron Buxton to make us make it here tonight. Uh, so we are winging it, uh, Stephen and I, along with our guest, uh, Emma Bachelary of uh, Sports Illustrated. Uh, we are super happy to be here. Uh, not good at the intro thing, so we're just going to roll right into it. How are you guys doing? Pretty good. I was honored to uh, step in for Jane tonight. It's big shoes to fill. Thank you. You're actually our, our, our stand-in host, so you're going to be taking, you're going to be leading everything from here on out. Oh, great. Thank you for the advance notice. Um, yeah, putting you, putting you to <laughs> work immediately. Steven, how's it going with you? You had a big uh, week this week. <laughs> oh, I'm still laughing about last night. Um, yeah, the Phillies are okay. They're, yeah, they're bringing yeah. me joy, which is more than I would have expected. They, uh, they, they seem to have that kind of controversial win. Uh, with Love a Al- controversial win. I, I, I wasn't watching that game. I was busy doing something uh, that was more fun than watching NL East games. Uh, can you can you ex- walk, walk, walk us through briefly what happened? What the controversy was? Because this is like there's not much news this week. It's just this and a couple other like minor things. Um. Well, I wasn't actually watching it either uh, until the late. Okay, because... Emma, can you tell us about? It? <laughs> no. <I'm... laughs> well, it was this was actually like a fun, good game. Like I put it on out of habit because Sunday night baseball. You don't have any other options, and I don't have any other life outside of this to do anything else but I wasn't expecting it to be that fun but it turned out to be like a pretty fun engaging game and then it's the Braves versus the Phillies um and then the the ninth inning to end it it was a very controversial play at the plate that looked very clearly wrong Alex Bohm um doing a little twirl his foot seemed to like bounce in front of the plate and mm-hmm. like take a weird turn. It was really I've never seen anything like quite like that before. It was super kind of strange. Yeah, it's the sort of thing where he was called safe at the plate, which gave the Phillies the win. And I can see how it, it was such a strange uh, situation that I can kind of understand how an ump would initially call that safe, even though he clearly seemed to be out on replay. But then what was yeah. you know frustrating about it was that's kind of what replay review should exist for. And it went to review and was not overturned, um, despite yeah. what seemed like extremely clear evidence. Right. The, the line they always use is like, the, it needs that's, uh, it needs the uh, in, like incontrovertible proof to overturn. Like it needs like, a, and there wasn't really a, there, there was a very clear angle that seemed to suggest like, yeah, they totally whiffed this one. And I, I guess like, do you think it's, be, uh, my theory is it's because umpires are mainly looking at the tag and at that point, they probably assume the foot is going to touch the base after a certain... I don't know. Like, it, it seems like um, it's weird that they would miss that call compared to uh, similar calls where I guess the tag is usually the issue uh, rather than the foot. Yeah, I have no idea what their logic is behind that. Um, I didn't tune in because, A, it was on ESPN and I didn't want to listen mm. to those people. B, the Phillies dropped two to the Braves at like in Atlanta or in Cobb County. Uh, and I was, I was just like dreading, oh, they're going to destroy us on national TV. I'm not watching. And then like, as I was getting the like updates, it was a really fun back and forth game with lots of like, lots of dingers, uh, lead changes. Love that. So I started tuning in and, and I was listening to the radio rather uh, with like the video on and, the radio guy, the Philly radio guys were just like, oh, okay, yeah, no, he's out. Like, all right, blah, blah, blah. And then they they just started yelling, and I'm like, wait, they called in safe? So, I, so then I turned to the TV, which was on a delay, and I looked at him like, what? How? Yeah. How? 
<laughs> there's like he did like there's no frame in which his foot is on the plate. No, it's like and... he's he goes it works as hard as he can to avoid the plate. Like he's, yeah, exactly. he's dancing around it. So I Yeah, I first of all assumed they would overturn it because obviously that's the correct call. And then when they didn't, I'm like, oh okay. Uh Acuna's gonna fucking <laughs> blast a dinger at the bottom of the ninth and like give us like our, our ball don't lie moment. And that ever happened. As a fan, is that, like, do you find that a more or less satisfying way to win? Like, it's kind of funny that it's so obviously stupid and yet you got away with it, but also yeah. it's not real, so. So, as a fan, my opinion is, I am glad my team won. I am also glad that one of the teams I hate the most lost, and that their fans are extra mad about it. So I, in fact, love this more than a regular victory. That's very fair, and I think it's an interesting point too. Like, uh, I, I I don't know. It's such a funny thing. Like you're you're right about uh, as as a fan, it's not like your guy was actually doing anything particularly like interesting or cool there that would that's like feel like you're getting away with someone. It's just the umpire screwing up. Mm-hmm. Unlike the Michael Cronfrodo thing, where like arguably <laughs> that's like a straight like one win to his, his war total. Like they don't they don't necessarily take that game if he doesn't do that. Like, sabermetrically, they should all be trying to sneak in those uh, uh, hit-by-pitches on the upper upper left corner. I, I can't believe we got two two calls like this within, like, a week of each other. Because the Conforto thing is, like, is similarly, you just, you, it doesn't pass the eye test. Like, you look at that and they're like, oh, that is obviously incorrect. And yet. Big time. And Emma, you actually wrote about it, I think, for this week. Uh, it, it, were you watching it in real time when it happened? I was, and I, it was, like, one of the few things that I was, like, moved to write about that I didn't have to be asked by an editor to, to please do my job about, um, because I thought it was so fucking funny. Like, I just, I loved it. It's so stupid, because it just, there, I mean, there are literally only two caveats in the rule to a hit-by-pitch is not a hit-by-pitch. One is that you made an effort to get hit by the pitch, and the other is that the pitch is in the strike zone and you didn't swing in it. And both of those were in play. Um, (laughs) It's just, like, it's so stupid and shouldn't work, like, that you can just lean into the strike zone and obviously let yourself get hit. And and not only to have that work, but it to be a walk-off game-winning hit-by-pitch is just amazing. I loved it. I loved every part of it. It's, like, Stupid bad sportsmanship, sure, but I had a, I really enjoyed every single part of that. It's so perfect. There's two moments in the sequence that I really love. One is like you can kind of see in his eyes the moment where he decides to do it, where it's like it's coming down the plate. It's an off-speed pitch, so he's not too too worried like about getting hit hard. And you can just kind of tell like he's making the conscious decision. Oh, I'm just gonna lean, you know, little teeny tiny, gonna edge in there, just a little teeny pinch. And then also I love it. It just barely clips the um, the the brace on uh, his elbow. And it's it's like you can barely even see it like making contact like it doesn't alter the the, the angle of the ball at all like even on it's like totally like non human flesh contact with like a piece of plastic and like that's treated exactly the same as if it hit him in like the in like in like the face yeah just unbeatable baseball it's both both of both the Mets and the Phillies wins from these like ridiculous events. They probably shouldn't have, but honestly, it's just too funny. It's too entertaining. And yeah. over the course of 
a long baseball season like this, they're going to have calls that go against them that are really stupid, that are going to cost them games. It's going to even out. Like, I'm... I would be furious if I were a Marlins or Braves fan at either of these things because that's how fandom is, and I don't. But you're not, so it's I fine. don't blame them for being furious. Like Braves fans should be pissed, <laughs> Marlins fans should be pissed, but that's just that's just sports, baby. Did either of the managers? I know they both went out to get kind of chippy. I don't think either one actually got thrown out though. I don't think Snicker or. Uh... Yeah, that would have been the only thing that yeah. could have made either of those better. They were I guess because yeah. the end of the game. Not, yeah. Yeah. I did love Snicker, like, perpetual red-ass doing the thing where like, he's in the dugout, and he pulls up his mask to go out on the field and gets up in the face of the umpires, and then pulls the mask down to talk to him. <laughs> and then he pulls the mask, he, he, he tries to pull the mask back up when he's done yelling, and it, like, <laughs> hits him in the eyes. So there's just, like, this this shot of him with a mask, like, between his upper lip and his eyebrows, and it's just so good. Some people don't have the chin for masks, and Brian Snicker is one of them. It just kind of, like, it, it kind of, like, just, just like, covers the whole lower half of his face. It just kind of vanishes in there. Weird, like, there was also that weird call in the Blue Jays-Angels game where it was, like, a 10-minute review play. I don't know. It's, like, it was a it was a strange week for both replay review and kind of the quirky rules at the, at the fringes of the game. I don't know. Other than that, there wasn't really... Was there anything else like that stood out to you this week uh, in terms of uh, good times, bad times? I didn't watch a super ton of it. It was just um, other than some Angels games, because I, I keep waiting for an Otani start that doesn't happen, because I guess he has a blister. Oh, do we have nothing for Showtime this week? No, I mean, he hit like a dinger. He cranked a, he cranked a dinger, dinger somewhere in the last week, but uh, other than that, he still hasn't started. Yeah, I have, I've, been, I've been tuned out more... Um this week i think the initial burst of oh my god baseball's back let me watch like five games a day has ebbed a little bit for me yeah i was gonna say the only other thing i feel like there was was um a little bit of good mets energy is like a corollary corollary to the idea that like mets energy is dying out in that they they waited to call a game um for obvious rain that i mean bad field conditions made no sense to be out there Started it, played for seven minutes, and then burned. <laughs> Stroman was the pitcher. Um, oh. Yeah, for no reason. Then announced he couldn't pitch for five more days. And then today they said, actually, he's pitching game two of the doubleheader, um, which is just brilliant. Like, the exact, oh, good. Yeah, what we know and love from them. Still there. That's that's what starting pitchers really love is is uh, just being, like, zero consistency in their days off. They, they're, they're famously big fans of that. Good for them. Well, that's good. If the Mets were, like, just totally competent and, like, well-run, it would be kind of boring. But I'm glad they still find any periphery ways to be very Mets. It's it's very, it's comforting, like a warm hug. And, Emma, it's got to be kind of hard to, like, switch back to baseball. You were you were writing about the women's NCAA tournament for a couple weeks. Like, going from, like, very high energy, uh, like, top stakes for that, that field of sport to, like, early baseball it has to be kind of like a rough, like, jump from one to the other. It was really weird, actually, because... I've never covered the tournament before, and I had a really good time with it. Some really good basketball, and um, you know, it, it was also nice to actually be like reporting from a stadium um, where there were people in it again, even if there were probably a few too many because it was Texas. Um, but yeah, it was just very weird because that uh, opening day was the day of the Final Four, so I like completely was like all in on the, the Final Four, and then I had the finals, and so like I felt like I missed the 
like normally I get very sentimental on opening day still like that's the one day where I'm still like oh like this is so beautiful like I'm so lucky to have my job like (laughs) I just want to watch like all 15 games and just like inject it into my veins I need it this is amazing and because I didn't have that and then I was like traveling and like tired and I had all this stuff to catch up on and Mm. like I was like uh like I, I didn't have that good romantic burst and now I'm just like watching the trash bottom half of the AL Central like I, I need that romanticism to get me going because otherwise like yep it's kind of a slog so um yeah it was a fun uh reporting experience but it was definitely different it's a tough transition and it's like it, it's it's you're immediately going from like it's it's just immediately covering the second start of the season for all the guys who are going to end up having like a seven and a half era yeah but it's <laughs> it's funny too you mentioned like the like that feel of the uh, super crowded stadium, like being back in there with that vibe, just because it was kind of a theme I thought in a couple of your recent pieces we wanted to talk about uh, that were kind of looking back on the past season. And there was a theme I noted between the two, one on uh, what it was like to be a groundskeeper uh, throughout the pandemic. And then also one about what the challenges that the fanatic faced uh, in an an empty season. And it was, there was like a funny run uh, running line between those of like, uh, almost like the the staff um, who have to keep the lights on at the empty church of baseball. That is such a beautifully poetic way to describe, like, I talked to the Philly fanatic. Um, thank you for that. It's like a very <laughs> academic way to tie it together. Um, but yeah, that was something that interest, that theme interested me a lot uh, last year, which I, I didn't cover a ton of games in person because, you know, I'm not a beat writer, so I don't have to. And also, I just found the ones I did cover, like, depressing as hell. Um, <laughs> and also, like, there's no work benefit to it because you get the same one or two players on Zoom if you're at home or if you're at the ballpark and nothing else. So, right. Um, yeah, I, like, I wasn't there for most of it, but I was thinking about it a lot, just how how fundamentally strange it was. And obviously, there was a lot of reporting on how players and managers and coaches were dealing with it, but not as much about everyone else. Um, and so I kind of had it in the, the back of my mind for a while. Um, and especially mascots, I really wanted to do something with a bunch of mascots and like kind of shelved that idea away for, okay, this is like a good opening day one. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think they're both just fascinating jobs, a groundskeeper and being a mascot. Um, because they both have like an element of performance to them like the mascot is obvious but the the groundskeeper really if you think about it you're getting the field ready each day and baseball has such a particular relationship to its its stadiums and its fields where it's like you go to watch the game to have a good time but like the field is such a part of that like you make pilgrimages to stadiums for you know for reasons beyond the game the dirt and the grass are treated like holy things Absolutely, and there and, and there people make a big deal about calling it a field instead of a a a, a, or a field or a park rather than like a stadium. Uh, and, and I think there was a great highlight. It might have been like college baseball recently, where there was that super checkerboarded outfield, and there was this like a squibbler right past second base, and uh, the ball hits those uh, intersecting outfield lines and just like wobbles back and forth. And the center fielder like struggles to get to it. Like you're right, it's like it's a super. Uh, I think there was a quote in your piece about it. it's. It's basically the equivalent of a 300 hitter. A good groundskeeper um, uh, contrib- can contribute that much to the field. And I, I know uh, 
the Diamondbacks are always my go-to example of a team that really struggled with the, uh, the grass on the field oh, for God, so long yeah. before they just gave in and went to the new generation of turf. Uh, you, you spoke with the uh, one of the groundskeeper, the, the the head groundskeeper on a team of more than two dozen groundskeepers, uh, or grounds employees, I suppose would be more accurate, for the Orioles at Camden, which has a spectacular outfield, unsurprisingly. And it sounds like that was the kind of job that... Um, uh, it, it's it's like I think I don't, maybe people don't realize that it's such a, a background that requires so much education uh, and training. Like I have a cousin who did a, a, a groundskeeper program for uh, golf courses, and I get the impression like that's a feeder for this kind of thing. Like maybe I'll be recruits from those programs because there's some comparisons in terms of like emphasis on how the ball rolls across those different disciplines. Yeah, it definitely is. Um, the the woman I spoke to, uh, Nicole Sherry, with the Orioles, like you said. She had done some work in golf courses before, and I, I think it kind of makes sense because, I mean, there's just so few baseball jobs. Like, it's, I mean, it's really just MLBs and AAA, AA, and, like, obviously people are taking care of the field below that, but it's not being a groundskeeper in the same way. <laughs> Whereas, like, golf courses, like, every golf course needs a bunch of people to do everything that golf needs. Um and yeah, it's so intense, which is part of why I'd wanted to talk to a groundskeeper forever. Um, partially because I've always been kind of fascinated by rolling off the tarp. Um, and oh, I love that. Yeah, exactly. The classic baseball. Love effect. watching them eat shit. <laughs> and I love the idea of them doing drills for it. That was my favorite thing about the piece is like, oh, yeah, it's beautiful, sunny day. You're all, you know, it's the coach mentality. Like, oh, no, get out there. We're doing these things. We're knocking them out. Blowing the whistle. Yes, I love that. Um, which it, and it makes sense that like, oh, this is actually like incredibly hard. That it's literally two dozen of you, and you have to be running all at the same pace. And also, <laughs> the tarp weighs like literally two thousand pounds. It's a ton, um, and like that's hard to do. Uh, and you're also doing it in front of people who are like pissed off because they're sitting in the rain and are hoping the scene's <laughs> going to come back, but like they don't know, and they're probably like a little drunk and maybe angry. And like, I I feel like groundskeepers oh, yeah. get like more heckling than uh they get credit for and yeah it's just a, a crazy job and um yeah so that was kind of a like a i'm not gonna say a lifelong dream but i for a long time had wanted to be able to sit down with the groundskeeper and be like, tell me everything and so i was really grateful that like the pandemic weirdness gave it a, a chance to do it and not seemed like totally random and forced absolutely and it's 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 another great job uh like like all all truly awful jobs are the ones where no one really notices unless you screw up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, the, especially with the tarp, like, every, I'm sure we all have memories of the one time someone falls under the tarp and none of the memories of the hundreds of times they execute it flawlessly. Yep. Yep. Just the best kind of work there is. I, I, I have no segue for the Philly Fanatic. Um, it's a great piece. Like all of like uh, one of the reasons I, I never really miss your piece, you get to cover kind of unusual beats like this that nobody else is, is really talking about. Um, you spoke with the current Philly fanatic. I, I don't want to say he's a Philly fanatic because that, that, that's the apparently fanatic's kind of best upon. friend. The fanatic's yeah. best friend. Yes. I got to preserve some uh, of the mystique. I also get the impression he's not the fanatic's only best friend. Uh, my impression is like he took, he took the job as the star as like the co or the backup. Yeah, he took the job as the backup. He is now the primary best friend, the bestest friend. Uh-huh. <laughs> and I think he has a backup of his own. I don't know if there are multiple backups. Um, but yes, he is the the main Philly fanatic, the main friend of the fanatic. 
The fanatic who is a friend of Dorothy. I had to get that joke out. Sorry. <laughs> Continue. Uh, uh, <laughs> okay. The, the, the thing I thought was most interesting about the piece, other than like the, the kind of the, the haunting sense of um, uh, struggle that it must be to be the fanatic in, in an empty stadium was that I, I was kind of shocked by how much agency the fanatic had over the role. Like, I guess I expected mascots to be like like a you know fifteen dollars an hour kind of job, but no, he's taking meetings with the the entertainment group and like sketching out plans for how to operate the whole the whole shebang. Yeah, I get the sense that um, I, I don't know if he's the only mascot with this level of autonomy, but I think he's one of very few, uh, which is partially partially driven home by the fact that no one else would let me talk to their mascots, um, <laughs> which is wild. <laughs> It was so weird because I guess I like I knew. Uh, yes, some teams are probably going to be weird about it, but just no one wanted to let their mascots talk. And he he's been doing this since like the the late '80s as a backup and the early '90s as the primary. Yeah. So like he's been doing it forever. I found him literally. I didn't go through the Phillies. I found he he has a LinkedIn page like. <laughs> and then I found his email address and I was like, I'm just going to email him and see, see if he'll do it. Like, I don't want to go through the media process. And he said yes and was yeah, lovely. You never know. Right. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think just because he's been doing it so long and also because, I mean, I think he's probably the most iconic baseball mascot. Like, he just has a level of, I guess you just earn a level of respect for being the fanatic's best friend for that long that they let you, you know, do what you want. But yeah, it is interesting that I, I get the sense that uh, it, for uh, other teams, it's maybe more of a constrained role rather than one that you have to like exercise your creative energy in. Uh, but for, for Tom, the fanatic, it's different. Absolutely. Which I guess spe- like that really speaks to the value of like that kind of, well, first off, it's cool to know the fanatic has such great job security. Yeah, <laughs> but like, maybe really. that's also a factor on why he's so good at it. Is like it's the same guy, and he's really gets to develop as a creative as a creative process. Yeah, it's also something that's interesting to me. Is a few years ago, I did a story about mascot costume designers because there's like four companies, and they're all very competitive. Oh, um, sure. Yeah, it's it's actually interesting that they tend to focus more on minor leagues because how often do you need a new major league costume? Like, not often because your mascot stays the same. But minor leagues are not only changing all the time, um, like changing affiliations, whatever, but when they get new team names for the last, you know, 10 years, their team names have been increasingly unhinged and difficult <laughs> to design a mascot for. And that was something that came up in that story, which was that the fanatic is kind of a such an iconic blueprint that like if you have a, a crazy mascot, like a rumble pony or a hop that you can't really easily make into something that like a kid is going to want to, uh, like take a picture with like it's the, the easiest thing to do is just like kind of do like how do I get a like a fanatic like creature and like right. embody his spirit and then like slightly tweak it to fit this team yeah icon in more ways than one absolutely yeah like just the you he mentions in your interview with him that like he gets mobbed like he's a beetle <laughs> and that's tr- like as a Phillies fan that is true like <laughs> I went, um, I, whenever I'm like at games and I happen to be near the fanatic, I, I like, I'm too cool for school. Like, you know, whatever, no big deal to me. Um, but I do remember, uh, they, my mom and I went to a mural dedication and it was like a big, like four story mural for the Phillies in like 
whatever. And the mayor was there and, you know, Ryan Howard was there and it was, it was all great, but the fanatic was there. And afterwards when like everything kind of dispersed, like he was like 50 feet away from me and he, there wasn't that many people around him. I'm like, I'm like an adult. Like, I'm like, I think I was like 26 when this happened and I was just like, mom, get a picture of me and the fanatic. And like, I went over to him and he noticed me and he, he was all like, you know, he's, a professional, so we all business. Yeah, we did the pose. The <laughs> we did the pose, and I like the look of joy on my face was just ridiculous because, like, it's he's just so iconic from all the years of basically doing the same thing, but like really honing it. The the particular brand of playfulness, in addition to like trolling, it's just it's it's perfect. Absolutely. And like, I, the, the Beatles comparison was funny because I don't remember the scene in A Hard Day's Night where the, the Beatles have to dodge glass bottles. But <laughs> shut up. Otherwise, Lauren. I think it's. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I think you're right. I think you're right. It's, it's, it's a funny commentary about like how developed that the skills are. Uh, like, for, also, like the, for the piece, I, th- that trollishness he has, I don't think any other team probably put up uh, cardboard cutouts of opposing fans. I think that was probably just the feeling. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so that he could pie them. Yeah. Yeah, and like squirt silly silly uh, spray in, his, in their faces and stuff. That's perfect. Yeah, it's the, like just walking that line of like in order to, to be a kind of a heel like that, you, you need someone to play off of. Um, and yeah, he does it like perfectly, like you said, being playful and lovable and also just kind of a troll. It's, no one does it better. And in an empty stadium, it, it seemed to me like he was very self-aware that like he was kind of going from almost like a, a theater performance to like a, a a film performance like he talks about like how he like he's 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 no longer playing for the audience he's playing for a camera and that changes how he does it and that came up in a couple different ways and steven you were saying about like that they would have bits specifically for for television last season that you could that you remembered oh yeah like you you'd come back from a commercial break and the camera would be on the fanatic he'd be in the stands like sitting like this with his arms sorry visual audio (laughs) medium um like all spread out and he'd have like two cardboard cutouts like his arms around two cardboard cutouts and he'd be like pantomiming talking to them and like slapping his knee because they said something funny it was just they do a bunch of stuff like that they like they really got into the cardboard cutout game um Mm -hmm. i know that what they whenever a philly would hit a home run into the outfield they put like a car they put a cardboard cutout of that player in that seat that the ball went um and then uh, toward the end of the season when they had more because like when they started the season they didn't have as many cutouts and then as it progressed um there were a bunch of like people who bought you know a cutout to go out into the outfield and uh if if memory serves correctly uh if a player hit a ball if a ball hit a, a person's cutout, the Phillies would, like, send that ball to that person signed by the person <laughs> who hit it. And just, like, cute shit like that, kind of, like, you need that to happen in whatever the hell last year was because it was just... Otherwise, it was just so goddamn grim. Yeah, I, I think there will probably be, like, a lot of, of push in the next year or so to not think about the 2020 in general in a lot of different, like, levels of, of society. Uh, but I, I think there's going to be, like, some elements of, of the baseball season in particular that, like, are kind of fun and, and poignant to remember. And, like, 
the cutouts are one of them. The change in how like the the fanatic handles um, stuff like that, I think, is going to be worth remembering and, and thinking about in the future, just because it is such a different a, a departure from everything else in baseball, especially when, now that we're back in kind of a more regular season. I don't know. It, it's interesting to think about what's going to stick and what isn't. I think like the the poignancy in both your pieces, of, both of them's pieces about um, about like the how alien and weird it was to be like the only person in a stadium designed to hold like eighty thousand. Like that kind of that kind of feeling is something that isn't going to come up too often uh going forward that is, is kind of worth remembering not to go too big beyond baseball here or whatever oh no please do oh please no do. go we, there we love please. that crap yeah yeah well i mean with i agree like i feel like there is not a lot i'm going to want to remember about 2020 uh outside of the context of baseball and like i'm already sure like we'll have in like five years it'll be a slew of like the pandemic narrative podcast and like hbo miniseries oh, and like i, I oh, know no. it's gonna be so bad it's gonna be so bad i'm gonna hate all of it um <laughs> and there's so little from the real world i want to remember but like these aspects of the baseball season were just perfect in that it'll i mean hopefully never happen again quite like this it was just strange but not painful if that makes sense like it it was in a yeah. context where it's interesting to remember and hold on to and it's like something that i thought was kind of important to capture while it was still partially in front of us um yeah i guess it's stuff that it feels like the the stakes of it are low enough that it is like interesting and nice to nice is the wrong word but it's just like there's something compelling about thinking about that in no way there that is like not at all compelling about thinking about like I don't know, like April 2020 debates over like the effectiveness of masks. Like I have zero interest in revisiting that, oh. but like this is different. Yeah, but you're right. This is stuff on the periphery. That's like, no, uh, it, it's, it's perfectly safe to be the only person in the stadium doing the grounds work. It's perfectly safe for the fanatic to be out hanging out with the, the cardboard cutouts doing bits. Like the, those are the parts that like are the memories that don't suck and are, are like super. And like, there's probably thir- 29 other teams with similar little traditions that hopefully someone remembers other than just the fans because that kind of stuff was cool yeah i feel like this will be like the, the weird thing i'm talking about when i'm like 80 oh yeah totally checked out the nursing home like can't recall the names that's nice kids. grandma let's get you to bed <laughs> yeah, yeah. <sighs> <sighs> all right uh do we want to grab a few questions from the listeners sure let's take a yeah let's take emma are you good with taking one or two yeah i would love to they're usually goofy enough that we can just kind of improvise without any background research. Background research usually real, spoils the fun. Steven, do you want to give us some? Yeah, I'll, I'll do some. I'm only going to do a few, uh, but <laughs> this one I really liked. Uh, best doppelgangers from at the cubbin, Andy. Uh, and he, he later clarifies like baseball players that look very similar to each other. Oh, okay. Uh, and... Yeah. I gotta say, my favorite is uh, Charlie Culberson and, and Dansby Swanson playing on the same team and looking exactly the same. I was gonna say that as soon as you said doppelgangers, but what was great Sorry. about that was they you know they also had um, Ian Anderson, who doesn't look quite as much like either of them as they look like each other. But the fact that there was a third one who looked just enough <laughs> like them, like a knockoff doppelganger, um, like the Property Brothers. Like yes. all three of them. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> there's the identical twins and then there's the third one. <laughs> it's perfect. It made it so much better than, you know, having just the two of them. And now I guess Culberson is, is gone. But the fact that they, the three of them were on the same team for even just, I guess, two years was perfect. 
Yeah. Absolutely. I, I don't know if I have like a favorite doppelganger. Like there was the, who were the two catchers a couple years ago, I think on the Braves that were near identical McCann and someone else. I can't think of any, like usually bland white guys all kind of blend together to begin with it. Like, 80% of any given roster is pretty hard to Yeah, you know. Tyler Flowers kind of looks oh, yeah. like him when he was there. Like, they, they're both bald white guys who are catchers, so, like... With, like, beards, yeah. 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 All right. Um, Tony, at Tony Queequeg, um, it, what is the ideal final score of a baseball game for entertainment value? Hmm. That's a good question. Like, I guess I, that probably doesn't mean, like, what song do they play after a win? Like, it probably means, like, more like a, <laughs> a, like a broader symphonic, like, wrap-up to a, a baseball narrative, like you're in a movie kind of thing. Because I, I, in terms of, like, end-of-game win, I, I always really like I Love L.A. I think, like, the Randy Newman song is perfect for that team and that, that stadium. But, uh, hmm, what classical piece would I have scoring the end of, like, a really good baseball game? <laughs> Are you going to actually answer the question, or... Well, I'm going to try to think of one. Do you have one? <laughs> um, I, I I could pick, like, a bunch of, like, aesthetically pleasing scores, like a 6-4 like a to four or a 5-3. to three. Like, a two-run win is, like, uh-huh. I feel pretty nice. But I also really love the blowouts. But they're... Yeah. Uh. But they're... I don't know. It's It's... For entertain, it's it's for entertainment value. So it's not for every day. So maybe I am going to lean more on the blowout blowout situation. I love when a team is down by a lot toward the later innings. I like trying to calculate. Okay, how many grand slams would they need to hit to get back into the game? And if it's more than two, then I just that's a great one. Yeah, I like. I'm someone who enjoys like pitchers duels. I think more than I enjoy like a ton of dingers, but I still mm-hmm. wouldn't choose that for like, I don't know. I guess I, um, this is going to sound really pretentious. Like, I feel like I enjoy a one game like more intellectually than like having just like sitting and having a good time. Like, uh, no, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. It's a different form of enjoyment. I wouldn't classify it as entertainment. Um, <laughs> oh, yeah. I've got it. I've got mine. Uh, one and O oh in 11 innings. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good one. That's a good game. I, uh, I I sincerely did not realize it was talking about the actual game score and not like a musical score until like midway through Stephen's answer. <laughs> I, got a, I was I like seriously just... trying to think of like a good piece of classical music. I no, I was not trolling. riffing. I was not doing a bit. I sincerely. That's incredible. I actually got as far as him saying like talking about like the blowouts and being like you know the ballad of Billy would be good for that like I'd love to see a, a, a Red Sox blowout game where like Warren Zevon spins up at the end really really poetic song about like I mean we can definitely go in yeah. that direction too I just don't know as much about music no it's fine it was just my brain not working properly do I have one more uh yeah let's do funniest potential storyline this season and that is from at sam underscore jail oh lots of potential mm-hmm. there i'd like to see uh, a run on uh, people bringing back the hot foot but it going really terribly wrong every time <laughs> <laughs> i think so last year something i found really funny in a way that i probably like shouldn't have so much was how much I loved that the Astros made the playoffs. Like it just seemed like the perfect, <laughs> stupid, funny, like way to just like 
prove that like everything is broken just like the absolute like nihilist choice yep 100 percent. but i feel like now that like people are trying to make it more of a thing it's just like too late and not as funny like the throwing trash cans on the field is like i admire in spirit but it's just like not hitting the same anymore i feel like there's not as much opportunity for like that was my ultimate funny storyline last year and i I feel like that's faded now like i don't really enjoy Mm -hmm. them as like they're not a team I find like super compelling to watch. And they're also, you know, good enough that it, eh. in that vein, I think mine, mine, well, mine isn't really a storyline. It's just a thing that, that would might happen. And so I'm, so I also like you just uh, like, okay, what was the last thing that I felt what found was really funny. And I found it fucking hysterical that the Los Angeles Dodgers, the greatest team of the last decade, the fucking juggernaut powerhouse, couldn't win a fucking World Series until there was a weird pandemic year, and then they won it. And I think the funniest thing for that going forward would be them not winning it again in, a, in uh, like, a normal year. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I see where you're coming from. I feel like there is something funny about it, but the fact that they had like tried and failed so many years before makes it kind of just like, uh, like there's definitely a kernel of humor there. Like I'm seeing it, but it's not hitting the same way as like, I want like, I think because they're like, they're not villains. Like Mm. I just genuinely enjoy that team so much that I just be like, well, that's a little little sad that you keep trying and can't like, That said, I do see where Steven's coming from. They and they have the rings. They don't give a shit. It's purely for the fans. It's purely to add to uh, tease Dodger fans, which is perfectly fine. There's nothing wrong with that. So I do see where you're coming from. I just I personally quite enjoyed Clayton Kershaw. So um, the only other things I can think of are like just something really stupid and unexpected happening with like the standings. Mm-hmm. Um, like I would. It would be so great if the NL Central team got in the playoffs with, like, a 500 record or something like that, because they all end up beating up on each other. Oh, sure. Um, the Marlins last year was super fun, funny for that reason. Yeah. yeah. They're just also yeah. funny because they had the added, like, crinkle of becomes a plague team. Um, yeah. And then, like, somehow still with, you know, 60 roster moves. Somehow purpose. makes it work. Yeah. And the, and yeah. who were the the other plague team last year was the Cardinals, right? Meh, no, yeah. They made it. They too. made it too. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess like the only close thing with the plague team this year is the Nationals, and even that seems to have blown over. Yeah. But I don't know. In, in the spirit of the Marlins, I think actually it would be a very funny narrative if, if they kept having uh like a like a two point two er staff um starter era like they have right now. And just never, still ended up like a less than 500 team. That'd be funny. I, I, I kind of appreciate that in like a very almost Metsian kind of way. Oh, that, yep. That would be the funniest storyline this season was Jacob deGrom continuing to like pitch like a uh, alien and still losing like half his starts. Yeah. And that hits on the same, like the, the way they mismanaged the, the rain out earlier of just like knowing that they still have they're still who they are at heart, like new ownership, you know, investing, like can't make it all go away. That's, that's a good, uh, little bit of continuity. I, I got to appreciate that. 
Absolutely, you gotta find you gotta find the Metsy in bits where you can. Absolutely. Well, I, I do. Are we good there? Do we want to do one more, or are, are we good? I think we're good. I think that's a good amount. And I'm just, I, I need to do a little bit of self reflection because I just realized that all of my answers to the funniest potential storyline were like deeply cruel to a group of people. <laughs> well, who would be the funniest team to be good rather than to be bad? Mm. I think it might be the Pirates. Rockies. Oh no! It would, yeah, yeah. It would. Rockies are pirates. It's one of those two. <laughs> yeah. but, but like, they're so bad that there's no chance that that could happen. No. Yeah, that's where I feel like it would be inspiring instead of funny, mm-hmm. um, or inspiring to a certain group of people and like depressing to others. Um, I think that's very true. Like, I think like that that opening day with the Rockies beating the the, the Dodgers was a very uncomfortable kind of funny, just because we had all spent the last two months being like. These guys suck. Mm-hmm. They're like bad, bad. And then they're like, oh no, we we can still hit eight home runs. It's fine. That was a little a little uncomfortable. Oh, that's oh. that's a perfect um funny storyline is now that we have the home run derby in cores, I want oh. I want it to be insane. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I want like uh who's like a third I want like Nick Ahmed hitting fifty home runs or yeah, something like, like really weird like that. Ban the humidifiers. <laughs> yeah, no. Someone needs to sabotage those the night before. Absolutely, hundred percent. Bring back last year's balls. They've got a couple buckets lying around. Come on. Oh God, a a funny a, t- a funny team to have success would be the Giants. Oh yeah, like yeah. one more run with the old crew. That'd be kind of cool. Anytime Gabe Kapler is involved, it's just going to get weird, and you don't know what's going to happen. You just hate Gabe Kapler a lot. That's like a that's a Stephen thing. I hate the Giants too, but understandably so. I'm so glad he's left his blog online. Like, I feel like someone else would have taken it down. It's such a gold mine. I don't know, I don't know why about the he blog. didn't. What's, what's oh my God, Lauren. Cap lifestyle. Never heard it. I'm, I'm totally unfamiliar with this. It's the origin of the coconut milk thing. Coconut oil. Oh, Lauren. Oh, Lauren. Lauren. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I, I feel like the best intro I can give you to this is that I once, for Baseball Prospectus, when it had its short relief series where you did like short quirky humor rating i took six quotes from gabe kapler's blog and six gwyneth paltrow quotes from goop and i had readers (laughs) guess like which one was it and people flunked because it was so hard to tell because they're basically the same thing oh that's beautiful oh i love his beautiful mind oh oh that's perfect we should do a dramatic reading next episode there's a fun idea. We'll have to have him back for the for the dramatic reading of Gabe Kapler's blog. I would. You should play the game. Don't don't Google that, and I'll bring back. Oh my fuck yeah! Let's... Or do you right. want to do this right now? Is it too late? Uh, I'm no. I'm up for I'm up for I'm it. up for it. I would okay. love yeah, this. absolutely. <laughs> do you have a Let's see. Do Do you have a link? Or can we just pull it up here? Let me see here. Gabe Kapler goop is a dangerous Google search. <laughs> <laughs> God, okay. we're doing we're doing so much. We're giving Jane so much editing work on an episode she's not even on. <laughs> okay, I have pulled it up. If you would like me to uh, read, yes, yeah, just, you just read link it. it in one of the. Oh yeah, read it. It's even better. Okay. Um, wait. I'm gonna. Sorry, sorry, Jane, for giving you more work. Um... We don't apologize to her. She she knows she got into. All right, Lauren, you ready for for the you and I to go head head to head? Absolutely, bring it on. Replace everything processed in your home with foods from the earth. No packages, no preservatives. You'll feel and look better, and I won't have to organize an, an intervention on your behalf. I'm gonna guess that one's Kapler. 
because I don't think Gwyneth Paltrow... I think Gwyneth Paltrow would be a little bit more emphasis on the organic side of things. My first instinct was also Kapler, but I'm going to go with Paltrow just just as a contrarian. It was Kapler. Damn. <laughs> okay, one for one. I can do that. I, I can be the Kapler, the, the Kapler whisperer. I know his mind. I just discovered tamarind paste. If you buy the hype, I'm now stronger than I was 15 minutes ago. Kapler. No, I think that's Paltrow. I'm going with Paltrow because I don't think I, I, tamarind paste is such a, a or a California. I have no thing. idea what that even is. It's Kapler. Oh. <laughs> what is what is it tamarind paste it's used in a lot of international cuisines i say it's like a california thing because it's like a super trendy thing uh, in, in like health health food circles choose whole foods the closer a food is to its original form the less processed sugar it will contain food in its natural form including fruits and vegetables usually present no metabolic problems for a normal body the metabolic makes me think it's kapler i think i think metabolic processes are much more of a kapler concern than a, a gwyneth paltrow concern i'm gonna go with gwyneth again it's Gwyneth. You got it. Yes! <laughs> Steven's overtaking me. This is not good. And then I, I think if we want to do for the last one, and this one is a little obvious, but I have to I, I have to go with this out loud. <laughs> I can honestly say I enjoyed eating the softer, edible bones of the chicken that I just now devoured more than the meat. I inhaled some of the harder portions, portions as well. If I could grind it up in my teeth, it was going down. Now, most folks aren't going to be crushing a plate full of bones, although our jaws and teeth are adequately equipped. More generally, humans transform bones into broth or stock, which I'm thrilled to experiment with at some point. But my intuition is leading me down the path of chewing rather than drinking, as I would in the wild animal kingdom. He's such a psychopath. There is so much psychology going on there. <laughs> oh, man. Huh. Lauren, his whole bog is like that. Oh, my God. That's Kapler. Yeah, it's, yeah I'll go with Kapler, because, like, it's a... Oh. The man spits out ice cream that's did uh, you hear that lauren that i that i knew about that one i was okay. familiar with it's it's specifically the choice between like between treating chewing versus drinking chicken uh treating that as like uh uh uh, uh something that people are going to evaluate and decide what's best for them chewing versus drinking chicken funny. bones yeah yeah well i like that he mentions like I'll try, like, chicken stock at some point. Like, I'm excited to experiment with that down the road. As if, like, <laughs> special I hear good things. <laughs> oh, there's not that many edible chicken bones in a chicken. Don't eat, don't eat chicken bones. I'm, oh, it's mostly, you're, he's eating cartilage. He's not eating bone. Okay, well, that's, that was a terrifying insight into someone, a man's mind. Was... Yeah, I, as someone who hates giants deeply and never wants to see them succeed, I think it would be extremely funny to get more Gabe Kapler in our lives on the national scale. Uh, it's just having a body fat percentage that low is not worth it if, the, if that's what it takes. No. <laughs> no. No, thank you. No, thank you. Uh, well, is that a good place to end? Should we should we wrap it up here? Uh, 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 Emma, thanks so much for being here. This is super fun. Uh, we, we hope you get to come back again when, when Jane's here and can help uh, uh, figure it out as the season goes on and, and things hopefully keep getting weirder and, and uh, stranger and more alienating for everyone. We, we need more people on to help us explain and understand these, these terrible times. Oh, yeah. yeah you're I in know. the batting around family now, so you're oh, stuck I'm with honored. us. honored. Yes, this was this was lovely. I always love a chance to bring up caplifestyle.com. So thank you for <laughs> indulging me. Our pleasure. Is there anything you want to, anything you want to promote or, or uh, sign up on before we go? Uh, not really. I'm on Twitter at Emma Bachelary. I would like to be on Twitter less, but I'm not. So come join. Yeah, story um, of our lives. Yeah. yeah. 
Awesome. Well, thanks, everybody. Uh, this is uh, another episode of Batting Around. We'll be back next week. Uh, we're doing good one episode a week now. And um, thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>